In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. So last time uh, we studied in the book of Exodus, chapters 24 and 25, um, which focused on Moses um, receiving the law uh, on the mountain. And then there was the beginning of the discussion uh, and the commandments of God regarding the building of the tabernacle. Specifically, um, God told Moses about the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark, um, the table of showbread, which is in the holy, and the golden lampstand, which is also in the holy of the tabernacle. And we spoke about the way the tabernacle was laid out. You have like a fence all the way around the tabernacle area, and then you have the outer court, which is like a courtyard, and then you have like a tent. The tent is um, where the, it's divided up into two sections. There's the holy and the holy of holies. Okay, The holy, which was the first part when you walk in, had the table of showbread, the golden lampstand. It also had the altar of incense, um, which hasn't been discussed yet. Um, and then there's a, a veil, a curtain. And then on the other side of the veil, there is the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And we spoke about that um, last time. Today we're going to continue... Um, speaking about the tabernacle and some of the uh, other materials that are used um, in the construction of the tabernacle, starting in Exodus chapter 26. So it says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. Okay, so this is the actual tent of the tabernacle itself, right? So you have the courtyard, the outer court, and then you have the actual tent of the tabernacle. So this is how God is explaining that the actual tent of the tabernacle should be. Um, it is going to be made from the curtains of fine woven linen, blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. Um, the fine threads, the fine um, uh, woven linen threads, this refers to the, the, the purity. Remember we said every color and every material has some kind of meaning. Um, the fine threads refer to purity. Blue refers to um, the fact that, uh, that that this is like a heavenly tabernacle. Um, purple is the color of royalty, the sign of the kingdom of God. And scarlet, which is red, is in reference to um, salvation through the blood of Christ. So we see kind of these elements being incorporated in the tabernacle, that this is a heavenly place. This is a royal place because it is the, 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 the house of God. And also it is for the purpose of the salvation of the people, um, signified by the color scarlet. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvedge of one set, and likewise you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to get to one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. So he's just discussing how you're going to connect these curtains together to make the actual structure of the tent. You shall also make the curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make eleven curtains. 
The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain 4 cubits, and the 11 curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple 5 curtains by themselves, and 6 curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the 6th curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set, and you shall make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtain of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and a covering of badger skins above that. And for the tabernacle, you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle, and you shall make the boards for the, tw for the tabernacle twenty boards for the south side. You shall make forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be twenty boards, and there forty sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them, they shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars on the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle and for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. So now he's speaking about the veil. But prior to this, he's speaking about all these details about how the tent is going to look and how it's constructed and, and all these things. And it definitely strikes you as how detailed this um, design is. Again, God did not just tell the people, even, even from just a general way, like make me a tent that's approximately this size and this shape. And whatever it is that you do is fine. God took the effort and the time to explain every single material every single even the connections between them and whether they were going to be gold or silver or linen or, or whatever it is and, and even the wood is a specific kind of wood acacia wood God had in his mind a very specific plan and design for this tabernacle this is why when we make even the church now we make the church in a specific way that there is a meaning behind the way that the church is made and the church has these three main sections, just like the tabernacle did, the outer court and the holy and the holy of holies, right? And so, so it's important for us to identify that God is detail-oriented and he cares about the details. So it's not right for us to kind of turn kind of the, the faith and kind of make it superficial, 
by saying all that matters is that we love one another. All that matters is fill in the blank, right? Because if that were truly the case, if, if that's all that matters, if that was the entirety of the faith, was simply to love one another, I'm not saying it's not important. It's, it's definitely the foundation, right? But if that's really all that mattered, why is God going to these, to these details? He, he would not have. Everything that the Lord says, all the commandments, if we go in through all the commandments that God said, they're all important. Everything that God says is important. So we have to have a balanced faith, right? A moderate faith, one that balances all the different things that God says and does not focus on one extreme with, while neglecting everything else, right? For instance, some people, they focus on the extreme of salvation is by faith alone, only, and to disregarding absolutely everything else. We know that salvation is by faith. We believe that salvation is by faith. But what does that mean, well, that salvation is by faith? Does that mean that works are completely ignored by God? That works have no purpose at all in the eyes of God? And then others go to the opposite extreme, and they make salvation to be primarily by our works. That, that what matters to God the most is whether we are good people. The, the goodness of our actions, of our thoughts, determine salvation. Again, this is not what God said. But if you read all of the scripture together, you see that there is a synergy between faith and works working together, just as St. James himself said in his epistle, show me your faith by your works, right? Show me your faith by your works, meaning we are definitely to have faith, and there is no salvation apart from faith, but what does faith mean? What does it mean to have faith? Part of having faith and the demonstration of such faith is the works that we exhibit as a result of faith, meaning that in order to have faith, it requires some kind of personal sacrifice, right? For me to say that I have faith, it means that I choose to live my life a certain way. It's not just a faith of my mind. It's not just something that I declare and I proclaim and I say, I believe such and such and such. That is not sufficient for us to say that we are faithful or that we have faith. But faith is, yes, I believe such and such, but because I believe this, I will put it into action, right? Like if you have an example of like, let's say a person who says they are not afraid of flying in an airplane. And then you ask them, are you afraid of flying in the airplane? No, I'm not afraid of flying in an airplane. But every single time I come to travel anywhere, I refuse to take an airplane because I'm afraid. So even though I tell people, and maybe I want to believe about myself that I am not afraid of flying, but my actions say different. My actions say I really am afraid of flying, right? So the words that we say and the actions that we do have to fit together, right? So God, when he is saying these details, right, think of it as the, the all of the things that God presents to us in the scripture, right? All of them are important, and we have to focus on each one. We can't focus on the things that only maybe some people believe are important and neglect all the rest, as I was mentioning to you before, um, there were people who um, touched the Ark, a person who touched the Ark of the Covenant when they were not supposed to touch it. And they touched it, why? They touched it because they didn't want it to fall on the ground because it was going to fall. But that person was not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant, and he knew it very well. But he did it because he didn't want it to fall. But what ended up happening to this person is he died because he did, he did, he, he, he transgressed the commandment of God. So, in the mind of God, holiness is important. Faith is important. Not touching the Ark of the Covenant is also important, right? So when we take everything that God says, we have to take it in a balanced way. 
And we have to take it with a full understanding of what all of Scripture says about something in order for us to truly say that I understand it and I'm practicing it in the right way. The word heresy, right? Heresy is someone who is believing something contrary to the faith, right? The word heresy, in the original Greek word, literally means pick and choose. Pick and choose. Meaning someone is taking something which is part of the whole and making it to be the whole, right? Something, someone is taking something in the faith, but he is focusing only on that thing and neglecting everything else. Meaning, I, what I like about Christianity is I like the fact that we are to serve one another and that we are to love one another. But what I don't like about Christianity is the idea that we are to be monogamous. I don't like that aspect of Christianity. So I'm going to take the part that I like and I'm going to discard the part that I don't like. And then I'm going to feel... Uh, comfortable in myself that I am fulfilling the commandment of God and I am I am I am like putting greater emphasis on the area that I am strong in greater emphasis on the area that I am I'm happy about and I minimize the other areas that I'm not happy about and 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 so it, in essence I'm creating for myself a new kind of religion a religion that's based on my own desires a, a religion that's really based on myself the things that I am naturally good at the things that I naturally want to do and agree with, those are become my religion. And the things that I naturally am not too interested in, don't like, or I'm not good at, or I struggle with, I minimize those things in my mind and say that they are not important. But in the mind of God, all these things are important. So we should be very careful, even as we read the scripture, as we try to understand what God wants from us, to say that we are submitting ourselves to God. This is what we are doing. We are coming to God with a spirit of humility and submission and saying, I submit myself to God and to his word. Whatever God says is true is true, and I'm submitting myself to this. I am not taking my own philosophies, my own desires, my own modern sense of morality that this world has invented for itself in terms of what is right and wrong in the eyes of the world and imposing that on the Bible and using that to judge the scripture. Right? This is what some people do. You know, for instance, Scripture says certain things are wrong, but I don't like to accept that those things are wrong. I want to believe that they're right. So I'm going to find some way to convince myself that this is actually not what Scripture is saying or that this is some outdated thing that no longer applies to us. So we need to be careful. And this is one of the things that we practice in the Orthodox Church is that we always go back to how did the original church understand everything in the Scripture? I'm not judging the scripture or interpreting it according to a 21st century mentality. I'm judging it according to how it was given, how the people understood it, how it was practiced, what was passed down from, from, the, from the Lord to the apostles to their disciples and what was instituted and established in the early church. And that's how we continue to understand the scripture. And that's how we continue to understand our tradition, um, holy tradition, and, and what we practice. So, yes, we don't have the tabernacle anymore. And we don't have all of these measurements um, anymore, but the same God who applied this philosophy of the specificity of all of this is the God that still exists, is the still the God that we worship now. He cares about the details. The details matter to him. We shouldn't gloss over anything in the scripture. We shouldn't gloss over something and just say, oh, this thing is outdated or unimportant. No, we need to study it. We need to understand it. We need to apply it. So that was... Um, like the outside of the tabernacle. Here he's speaking about the veil. Remember, the, the tent of the tabernacle had two sections. It had the holy 
and the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the most um, holy part of the tabernacle that no one could enter except the high priest and that only once a year. Okay, And so there is this veil, this curtain, okay, that is separating the holy from the holy of holies. And this veil represents the separation between us and God. We do not have, we did not have access to God the Father. We did not have access to him. We were separated from him because of our sin. And this was the state of all of the Old Testament. It was like this. This is why, and this is the curtain that, um, when it says after the crucifixion of Christ, that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the veil that was torn in two. Of course, it wasn't in the tabernacle at the time. It was in the temple. So later on, they built like a larger version of the tabernacle that became a permanent structure that was in Jerusalem. This is a portable tabernacle, a portable tent that they would erect and they would tear down as they wandered around in the wilderness. But eventually, at the time of King Solomon, they built a permanent structure, which is the temple, and that temple also had a veil between the holy and the holy of holies, and that veil is what was torn into when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified because he tore the separation. He, he removed the separation between us and God, essentially saying that all of us now have access to the holy of holies. Everyone has. There is nothing preventing us from entering into the Holy of Holies. Whereas in the Old Testament, only the high priest once a year could enter the Holy of Holies because we could not approach God. Whereas now because we can approach God, this, uh, this separator is, is removed. But here he's describing how it would look. Do you have a question? Yeah. Yes, there were measurements. And it tended to be like, like proportional to this but larger. So, yeah, so you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, the same, the same materials and colors as we mentioned for the tent itself, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of the cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with, their, with gold. Their hooks shall be at gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony, which is the Ark of the Covenant, there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy, which is also called the Holy of Holies. So you can see here on the right side, there is the holy, and on the, on the left side, there is the most holy. If you remember, which direction did we say that the tabernacle was facing? When you walked into the tabernacle, which direction were you facing? West. And why West. Because God said, but what does West represent symbolically? Yeah, the, the rejection or separation from God. Because that's why when we pray, we face the East. And our churches are built such that they're facing the East. Because the scripture says that when the Lord comes and a second coming, he will come from the East. So East, like symbolically, represents that we are like looking at God. Or like we are being, we are reconciled to God and waiting for his coming. Okay, and the West represents the opposite. This is why, actually, in the baptism um, ceremony, okay, there is a part which is like a vow that the person who is being baptized takes. Okay, so a person who is being baptized, they face the West, and they say a vow that is essentially renouncing the devil, renouncing sin and evil and wickedness. And this is done facing the West because West represents evil and separation from God. And then they turn to the east, 
And then they say another vow, which is confirming their faith, okay, and accepting of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was built facing the West, and in the New Testament, the churches are built facing the East, okay, because now we have been reconciled with God. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony and the most holy. We spoke about this last time. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. So this is the table of what? What is the table that is referring to? The table of showbread. And what did the table of showbread represent? Twelve tribes, which was represented by what? Twelve's what? What's on the table? Twelve breads. Twelve bread. Okay, and each bread represents a tribe. So, so, and what was the kind of what was the symbolism behind the bread? The Eucharist. Yes, you can. You can. Yes, yeah, so in the New Testament, you can say it is the Eucharist. It is the sustenance of God sustaining the people, both physically and spiritually, right? So, essentially, it's saying God is providing for the sustenance, the care of all of the Israelites, of all of the tribes of Israel. That's why there's 12, 12 loaves of bread, and so that whoever sees it would remember that God is pro their provider and God is providing for them. And this bread would be eaten by the priest on every Sabbath day and would be made again and would remain there on the table as, a, as a always as a reminder of the sustenance of God. And the lampstand also we spoke about how this represents that God is the light that illuminates them and that this um, lampstand also is there in the holy. Okay, So you can see on the left here there's the golden lampstand okay, which was on... Um, uh, the south side, right? So remember, if you're facing west, okay, south is on the left, okay? And the table of showbread on the right to the north, there's also the altar of incense there, which hasn't been discussed yet, and then you have that vertical line which represents the veil. So on the right side there is the Holy of Holies, also called the Most Holy, and you see there the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. So this is the actual door that you enter the tent, right? So as you enter, you enter into what? Where, where do you enter? The holy, right? You enter into the holy when you enter this door. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Okay? Now he goes on. He discusses now one of the elements that is in the outer court. This is called the altar of burnt offering. It is in the outer court. And this is where all the animal sacrifices were taking place. Okay? So this is where they would offer the burnt sacrifices to God, was on this altar, which was in the outer court. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Remember, we said a cubit is about a foot and a half. So this is very large, okay? Um, the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Just a note here about the horns. Have you, do you remember reading in the scripture about the horns of the altar? Okay, these are the horns of the altar. And it was said that 
whenever someone would like someone was chasing them in order to kill them because they had committed some kind of a crime or something they had done wrong and so they were being chased by someone who wanted to kill them they would run into uh into the tabernacle or to the temple and they would hold on to the horns of the altar and then when they touch the horns of the altar it's like they were redeemed and they couldn't be touched no one could go in and kill them when they're holding the horns of the altar and the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the names that, that he is given, is he's the horn of salvation. Okay? So these horns are like a representation and the redemption of the redemption of God as the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us. So when the Lord we say about him, he's the horns of salvation, we mean what? That it is through him that we have forgiveness of our sins, that even though we are deserving of death because of our sins that we have committed and yet we are saved from death and we are redeemed because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ okay and this is the the horns of the altar here on this altar also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans you shall make all its utensils of bronze you shall make a grate for it a network of bronze and on the network you shall make four bronze rings uh, at its four corners you shall put it under the rim of the altar, beneath the network, maybe midway up the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. So this is these um, poles is what would be used, just as in all the other things that were inside the tent, would be used to carry this. Remember, all of this had to be transported. They used the tabernacle for 40 years when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So everything here that we're discussing had to be broken down and then transported and then erected and set up again in the new location where they would be. Um, one other interesting thing about the, um, the altar of burnt offering is that you'll notice that instead of God saying that it would be um, overlaid with gold, like all the other things that we were reading about inside the tabernacle tent. Here, he's speaking about how it would be ordained uh, or overlaid with bronze um, instead of gold, right? It is like the, the, the highest quality and the most precious um, thing, which is found inside the temple, right? And it's found where, where God dwells, right? In the Holy of Holies and in the Holy was made of gold to represent like how pure and how holy this is. But then as you move further away, the types of metals that are used are like of lower quality than the things that you will find inside the tent itself. Like in the tent is like the representing heaven and you find like the most beautiful and the most ornate things. So here's another uh, view. Um, so you can see how the tabernacle is laid out. Um, so again, here's the tent. The first part of it is the holy the part in the back there is the Holy of Holies. Here is the bronze altar, which is the altar of burnt offering that we were just describing. Um, here is uh, the entrance of the entire, um, the entire tabernacle. So the door that we had spoken about before was this door. Um, this entrance gate is something we are still going to um, discuss. And now he's going to speak about um, the, outer, the outer court. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle, the outer court. For the south side, there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen. 
100 cubits long. So he's speaking here about the fence, okay? He's speaking about th the fence here that you see all the way um, around. Um, 100 cubits long for one side, and it's 20 pillars, and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long, with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze, and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits. Right, So it was 100 cubits by 50 cubits. That is the dimensions of the entire, um, the entire tabernacle. With their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets, the width of the court on the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their sockets. So now he's speaking about the, the east side, okay? The side that you walk in from in the entrance gate, okay? You have um, a, a part of the, of the, the fence, right? The, the hangings, this is the hangings on one side and on the other side and in the middle there is the entrance gate with three pillars and their three sockets. On the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. Okay, So you see the front part there, the east part where people would walk in from, there would be the section on the left, the section on the right, and then in the middle there is the actual gate of the entrance. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets okay so again uh, as before we have the similar materials and the similar colors that have the similar uh, meaning representing the, the Lord Jesus Christ if you um, if you read in John chapter 10 verse 9 when the Lord is speaking about the Good Shepherd he says about himself he says I am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture right so this gate represents the Lord Jesus Christ Okay, and again, the, the colors, right? Blue for, for the heavenly, purple for royalty, and scarlet for salvation through the blood. Okay, so this door represents the Lord Jesus Christ, um, especially he says about himself, I am the door. All the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver, their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout, and the height five cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for all its service, all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. So they would use this oil to light these, um, these, these lamps that are on the golden candle stand. And the tab of tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So the, he's, he's now going to introduce the priesthood. Okay, So all of the priests, which were the ones that were to offer the sacrifices, the ones who are interceding to God for the people, who would facilitate all of the burnt offerings and all the sacrifices that the people would offer. This was the role of the priests, and they were all from the sons of Aaron. Remember, Aaron is the brother of Moses. Okay, All of the descendants of Aaron were the ones who were the priests, Okay, who were to become 
the priests. And Aaron was the first high priest. Okay, um, So he's going to speak now. God is speaking about the actual garments of the priesthood. Even the garments of the priest all had meaning. And they were very specific in the way that God commanded that they were to be made. Okay. So he says, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So these garments okay, were these special clothes that the priests were to wear, which indicates that they had a special role and rank among the people, so they could be easily identified. Okay, one of the reasons the priests in the Orthodox Church dress differently than others so they can be easily identified so people will know that this person is a priest. Also, the specifics of the garments themselves that um, Aaron and his sons were to wear had a very specific meaning, okay? And we're going we're gonna to talk um, about that. It says, You shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they, make, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So these are all the different elements um, of the garments of the priest. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons, that he may minister to me as priest. Okay, and here, you can try to... Can we zoom in on this or no? Here. Okay. So he has head covering. Okay. And there is uh, an ephod. The ephod is the outer covering um, of the priest. This is very, very ornate, multicolored. And you notice that the, the design and the colors are similar to that of the tabernacle itself. Okay, There is like a belt here. Okay, There is something called the urim and the thummim, which we're going to talk about. There is a breastplate, which is uh, this grid of 12 gemstones. It's hard to see here because it's all like colorful. But there is, there is a... a, a a panel here, like a breastplate that has these 12 gemstones in a grid, okay? And there's several layers of, of clothing. The ephod is the outer layer, and there's several layers underneath of different colors. Um, and then um, on the edges of this garment here, there are um, uh, what are called bells and pomegranates. Pomegranates are like just decorative pomegranate-looking like like um, like adornments, okay, like ornaments. Um so he's going to speak about these um, these elements here, and we can refer back to this um, if uh, if we need to. Okay. They shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen. Right. This is the same materials used to make the the, the, the tabernacle, and they shall make the ephod which is that outer colorful garment 
of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. Okay, the idea that the materials of the priesthood garment, the ephod, are the same as that of the tabernacle means something. It means that the role of the priest is indistinguishable from and cannot be separated from the tabernacle itself. Right? The priest is working to fulfill the same mission and goal that God erected the tabernacle for, which is the salvation of the people. Right? They are, they are one. They cannot be separated from one another. Right? The priesthood and the church are working together. Right? The priesthood, the priests bring the people to the church. They bring the people to God. And the tabernacle was the house of God. So the, the, the role of the priest was to, to bring the people, to bring them to repentance, to bring their offerings, to sacrifice them to God in the tabernacle, to, to, to reconcile the people with God. This is one of the, the main roles of what the priesthood is about. It's about reconciling people um, with God, and the role of the priest cannot be separated from that of the church, that of the tabernacle. It shall have, this is the ephod, it shall have two shoulder straps joined at its edges and it, sh it and so it shall be joined together okay so he's speaking about the way the shoulder the shoulder straps are and the intricately woven band of the ephod which is on it shall be of the same workmanship made of gold blue purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel six of their names on one stone and six names on the other stone in order of their birth. So there are these onyx stones, and on these stones are engraved what? The names of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel in order of their birth, and one stone would be put on this shoulder clasp on one side, and the other one would be put on the shoulder clasp on the other side. What do you think this represents? Okay, the priest sustains the people of Israel. In what way does the priest sustain them? Carrying them, right? Exactly. This is like the, the he is carrying their burden, right? He is bearing them because it is the role of the priest to present the people to God, right? To present the people to God and to, to, to carry them to, like to carry them to God, to bring them to God, okay? So, so, um, this is this is what it means. Like the priest is always like bearing the burden of the people on him. He's always remembering the people. He's always keeping them in his thoughts, in his prayers. That he is always thinking about them and serving them. It says with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold. Okay. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold. You shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. Okay, so that's the onyx stones that have the names of Israel on them. He's the priest is carrying their burden, carrying them on his shoulders. The next is what's called the breastplate of judgment. 
Okay, the breastplate of judgment. It says, you shall make the breastplate of judgment artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. You shall make it. It's the same materials as the ephod and the same materials as the tabernacle. Okay. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it, four rows of stones. The first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and diamond. The third row shall be jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, onyx, and jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. Where else do we hear about these stones? In the book of Revelation, these same stones are mentioned that represent the twi 12 tribes of Israel, which represent all of God's people. Okay, yes. To ask, how are these similar and different than whatever is in Revelation? They're the same. They're the same. Yeah. Because okay. mm. I thought there was like one in Revelation where it was like Chalcedon. So I think or, or uh, other some of the, I, well, I think s some of them can be have multiple translations. But for the most part, I believe they're they're mostly all the same. Yeah. Yes. Do you have a question, Mark? Okay. And the stone shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, and they shall be according to the 12 tribes. So each one of these... Uh, will be engraved with the name of a tribe. So each one has represents a single tribe, okay? And there's 12. And again, the priest is carrying them always um, on his chest. And you shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold. And you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate and put the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold and the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate. And the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate. So this is all just about how to attach the breastplate. On the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod, and two other rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward his front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of ephod. See, see how detailed this is? He, he didn't just say make the breastplate and and then just put it on the front. He, he told them exactly how to put it. Exactly. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod and so the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. Okay. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. So what is the difference between carrying the names of the people here on the breastplate versus carrying the names of the people on his shoulders? Because now he's got them twice. They are near his heart. They're near his heart. And, and that's exactly what it says. Breastplate of judgment over his heart. So what does that mean that it's near his heart?
God's love for his people? Yeah, so it's the difference between, so the onyx stones, remember the onyx stones on the shoulder, they represent res the responsibility, right? The priest has a responsibility. He is carrying a burden, the burden of the people. The this breastplate, which is near his heart, represents the love that he has toward his people, represents that he remembers all the time his people before him. Um, Jeremiah, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Like, it is a love that desires the repentance and the salvation of the people. It is not just a responsibility, but it is a fervent desire for their salvation, right? Uh, it reminds me of the story, which we're going to read um, later on, uh, where, uh, where uh, the people of Israel are being very stubborn and disobedient. And so God, in his wrath, decides that he is going to completely wipe them out. And he is going to bring to Moses a brand new people for him to lead. This is what God says. And Moses, out of his love for the people, he says, no. If you are going to blot out these people's names from the book of life, blot out my name as well. So Moses is making this sacrifice for the people out of love for them. He says, yes, even though these people are stubborn and disobedient, and even though they give me a hard time all the time and they don't listen, and yet he is offering himself instead of them. He's saying, if you are going to condemn them, condemn me with them. And God heard this intercession on behalf of the people, and he refrained from doing this. He didn't destroy them. Okay, So here, you see that this is the role of the spiritual leadership, the role of the priest, is to not only feel that he has a responsibility to do what is right for the people, but also he has their best interests, and he has a love and a desire for their salvation. He keeps them close to his heart, and it says what? That these are as a memorial before the Lord continually. A memorial in before the Lord. He is remembering them always in his prayers. He's remembering them always in his heart. He has a desire and a love for them and wants to see their salvation and their success. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. So what is this Urim and Thummim? These literally, what, what these two wor words mean, Urim and Thummim, they mean enlightenment and perfection. Okay, Enlightenment and perfection. Some people believe that these were like two precious stones that were placed on the breastplate over the heart, and it was through these that the high priest would, would the, the will of God would be revealed to him. Right? the will of God would be revealed to him. And there would be many times where um, in the scripture where it says the Lord said to a person or like they're trying to make a decision or a choice and it says the Lord said, right? But there was no words, like there was no words that were, be that were being said. Um, there, there, this was a, a way for God to um, reveal his will to the priest to the high priest, who would, who would lead the people and into whatever decision that needed to be made, like the, the important decisions, when it had to lose, like decisions of that would affect all of the people together, um, this Urim and Thummim would be a means for God to reveal his will to them. Um, it's some people say that it's almost kind of like yes and no, like, like 
the people would ask a question and somehow God would, would indicate the answer as yes and no in, in something related to these. I'm not sure exactly um, how it was, but, um, but you, you can imagine that if God would like one of them represents yes, the other one represents no, and God would somehow reveal his will to them that way. So some people say that. Um, some people say that the Urim and the Thummim were used at the time of the tabernacle, uh, which is the time we're talking about now. But, uh, but finally, when after the temple was built, God would speak to the people through the prophets. Because later on, you don't hear as much about the Urim and Thummim as we do now. So they also indicate that the ministry of the priests should not depend on the human work and counsel, but upon the wisdom of God, which is here when it says, so Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart. That, that it is the judgment of God that is governing the people and not the judgment of Aaron. It is not the judgment of a man. Which is when even when we speak in the church, like we have the, the council of the bishops, which is the Holy Synod. Okay? When, when they come together to make decisions on behalf of the whole church, we believe that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is working in them for the benefit and the good of the church, right? It is not the, the decisions of men, but it is the decisions of God that is reflected and communicated through the ecclesiastical order and through the council. You shall make the robe, okay, so this is the next thing, the robe that is underneath the ephod. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it, it shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. Okay, so this would be b worn directly under the ephod, okay? And it represents the inner life of the priest. You know, so the ephod was on the outside is what you would see, right, that the priest is wearing. The blue that is underneath, okay, represents the inner life. And remember, the color blue represents the heavenly. So it's like the, the inner life of the priest is filled with the heavens, is filled with the heavenly thought. Okay, uh, inside. And upon its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. So that's what we saw in the picture at the bottom. So you can see at the bottom there. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out that he may not die. Okay, so these bells, they, they, they refer to the proclamation of the word of God. Like wherever the priest goes, he is a constant reminder to all the people around him about God. Okay, and the pomegranates are referring to like fruits. So you have bells and pomegranates. The bells is like enunciating and proclaiming the word of God. That Wherever he goes, people would bring God into their, into their remembrance. And the, the fruits, the pomegranates, they represent like the necessity of bearing fruits the the spiritual fruits that we bear as the children of God and so again these have a meaning that when he walks around it will, it will remind people of the presence of God remind people of their um, need to str strive for holiness you shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holiness to the Lord so now we're talking about what's on his head okay so there is this gold plate that says holiness to the Lord and you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban. It shall be on the front of the turban, so it shall be on Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts, 
and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Okay. Uh, Father Tadros Malati, he says about this, he says, the priest enters into the altar, the divine throne, not out of his own righteousness or because of his own strife, but hidden in Christ the Lord, who is the object of the Father's pleasure. Right? So, like, it is through the holiness of Christ that is dwelling in the priest, right, that he is able to stand before the altar, that he is able to make the sacrifice, and it is a calling for the priest himself to be holy. We said that the blue garment represents the inner heavenly thoughts and life of the priest, and this sign holiness to the Lord, that he is consecrated to a life of holiness through the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord is holy. Remember, the, the Lord is the great high priest, right? And it speaks about this in the book of Hebrews, how the Lord Jesus Christ is the great high priest. And so all of the priests in the Old Testament, the high priest, are a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So just as the Lord Jesus Christ is holy, so also all the priests should be holy and consecrated to their service. Also, Aaron bears the responsibility if the people use the holy things in a vain way or in an impure way. And this is what it says when it says, Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their gifts. So, so if the people come and they make an impure offering or, or, or Aaron does not, um, as the high priest, he, he, does, he does not teach them what to offer and how to offer, it is the responsibility of Aaron. If the people are vain in their offering or they offer impure offering, that Aaron is the one who takes that responsibility on himself. You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. So now this is the another layer, like a white tunic that's underneath. You shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen, and you shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and beauty. Okay? So there was a girdle that they would wear, like this sash. Um, whenever they offer the sacrifice, this belt that we that we wear around them. And this idea of girdling is something that was intended to refer to th the idea that these priests are servants and ministers to their masters, right? So it's like as though the, the priest in his ministry feels that he is always serving those people whom he is serving, not that he is like a judge over them or, an, or a master over them, but instead he is a servant over them or a servant that is, that is serving them. And, and actually we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he came um, after the Last Supper to wash the feet of the apostles. It says in John 13 verse 4, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And then he, s he proceeded to wash their feet. So the idea of being girded here is, is a representation and a, repre a representation of um, being a servant, right? So the priest having this girdle is like showing that he is, he is ready to serve the people just as the Lord Jesus Christ did, did so. And actually on the day of Covenant Thursday during Holy Week, Whenever we have the liturgy of the waters, the end prayer that we pray um, during that day, at the end of it, the priest will get the towel. He will gird himself just as the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will actually wash the feet of the congregation, right? And so this, again, represents that the priest is the servant of the people that is there to serve them. And so also here, this girding of the priest represents their service to the people. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, 
You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister to me as priests. So there was a special consecration that would happen upon Aaron um, and the those who were to be priests. They would be anointed with oil as a sign of their consecration. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. So you see that these people were treated in a very special way, right? They were the ones consecrated. They were the ones anointed with oil. They were the ones who were given the special garments to wear. They were the ones who were the only ones allowed to enter into the tabernacle to offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. This is why later on, whenever other people from the congregation said that they themselves wanted to be the priests and they themselves wanted to do what, what Aaron did and so on, that they were rejected. And God made it very clear that this was for this group. This is this group was called to this service and not everyone. Not everyone in the congregation was called to this service. It doesn't mean that these people were more holy or than, than others. Actually, Nadab and Abihu, who are of the sons of Aaron, later on, they offer profane fire before the Lord that's displeasing to God. So it is not to say that these specific people who were chosen were like the most holy people. But God chose them and he gave them this rank and this position and their role to play. They shall be on Aaron and his, on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. They do not incur iniquity and die. Wait, sorry, let me skip this part. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness that they shall reach to the waist to the thighs. Oh, yeah, we did say that. So he's saying, essentially, they have to be modest, right? That they have to be modest when they enter the tabernacle of meeting. It shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. And glory be to God forever. Amen. So we covered today um, the actual construction of the tabernacle. We talked about the, the curtains of the tabernacle. We talked about the veil. We talked about the gate of the, or the, the door of the tabernacle, the gate of the entire tabernacle um, encampment. We talked about the fence all the way around. Um, and we spoke about the garments of the priest um, and all of the symbolism and the duties and responsibilities of the priest and, and what his clothes represent. Do you have any questions about anything we talked about today? I know this is kind of a heavy part of the book of Exodus because there's a lot of stuff and a lot of symbolism okay but uh, it's also important to keep it in mind to understand um, you know what is it that God asked Moses to do okay let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit one God amen we thank you O Lord for this day we ask for your blessing in everything and we ask that you help us to see the symbolism behind all of the beautiful things that you asked your people to do in the Old Testament and how they apply to us today and how your son O Lord came for our salvation through his blood that we may be redeemed and how this plan of salvation was set in motion even from after the fall in the Garden of Eden we thank you O God for your mercy upon us and your desire to bring us to yourself Grant us, O Lord, your salvation, and grant us, O Lord, to make use and to benefit from all of the gifts and the sacraments you have offered to us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, 
Hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, and the community, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.